Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Lots of kids play video games when they're young. Most of them don't end up living the game. But you're about to hear the story of a boy who did. And chances are, his name is one you've heard before. I should say, though, this isn't a story about video games, or classic movies, or basketball, or Albert Einstein, though all of them will make appearances. It's a story about you, what you're capable of, and whether we too commonly delude ourselves when it comes to that question. But first, back to that video game, the one that ended up pretty much coming true. Mark Trammell is one of the great video game designers who has ever lived. Ben Cohen is a sports reporter at the Wall Street Journal. He made a bunch of arcade games in the 80s when he was really young, and the game that he's most known for now is this game called NBA Jam. Welcome to NBA Jam! And what happened in NBA Jam when you made two, three shots in a row was that a player was heating up, and then he was on fire. To Pippen for two, he's on fire! And what happened when you were on fire is that if you were controlling a basketball player, he was like 95% to make his next shot. Now, obviously, NBA Jam is a game. Being on a winning streak in a video game, that doesn't have a whole lot of carryover to whether you or I feel like we're on fire today, like we're truly unbeatable. Except, says Cohen, Termel may have been on to something. Mark Termel, in a lot of ways, single-handedly brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds into believing that there is such a thing as the hot hand. Steph Curry happened to be one of them. Steph Curry played NBA Jam. I, I, I am almost exactly the same age as Steph Curry, so I can attest that NBA Jam was sort of omnipresent if you were of a certain age and you know you were ever around an arcade or or a basketball gym or anything like everybody knew what nba jam was and everybody felt the hot hand was real because you were heating up and then you were on fire cohen is the author of the book the hot hand the mystery and science of streaks in which he tries to figure out whether you can indeed get on a winning streak and whether great artists, great mathematicians, whether they tend to produce their greatest stuff during certain periods in their lives, times when they feel truly like they are on fire. Which brings us back to Steph Curry. Curry with the floater, got it to go. Tell you what, for a guy who a lot of people questioned at 6'3", 185 pounds, could he be effective in the league? He has put those concerns to rest. And Curry makes them pay at the exactly 20 years after Mark Turmel released this video game called NBA Jam, Steph Curry found himself playing basketball in Madison Square Garden. A couple. You better look out. That guy is hot. Curry for three. Wow! Unbelievable! Making it rain in New York. 46. He has no way to predict this. He doesn't know that it's about to happen, but once it does, he embraces it. He makes 11 of his 13 three-pointers that night. He scores 54 points, which to this day is the most points he's ever scored in a game. And it was really that game that convinced him that he could shoot more, that he should shoot more. And what has happened since then is kind of revolutionary. In 2013, when this amazing game took place, Cohen says Steph Curry wasn't that big a deal. Plus, nothing seemed to be breaking his way. The Golden State Warriors had played a game that previous evening. They'd hardly gotten any sleep. 
and they find out that some of their players have been suspended because there was a fight in Indiana the night before. And Steph Curry was actually involved in this fight. If you go back and watch the footage, as I have, he sort of instigates it, but he only gets fined. He doesn't get suspended. And that's in part because of his size. He's not big enough to do any damage in a real NBA fight. And it's it's, it's very ironic because for most of his life, his size had been his one great disadvantage. But Curry doesn't get suspended, just fined. And then, as the game at Madison Square Garden nears, Curry gets on the bus, which is taking the players to the game, along with some of his teammates. There are three buses that leave the Warriors Hotel before every game, right? Steph Curry is always on the second bus. For some reason, that day, he takes the third bus. And what happens? But the third bus gets pulled over by New York cops on the way to Madison Square Garden for taking an illegal turn. So... They are rushed. They are late. They are trying something completely different. And what happens in that game is that Steph Curry is the hottest he has ever been. How aware are you of how many points you have as the game's going on? Not really until my teammates start jabbing at me. Um, uh, you know, they were they were in my ear, treating me like the, like a pitcher just throwing a no hitter, uh, not trying to touch my right hand and all that funny stuff. So. Um, that, I mean, I, I knew I was knocking down, you know, a lot of shots, so I, I knew it was a good night. Just didn't realize, you know, exactly what that meant. I was trying not to look at the scoreboard. Well, I think it's funny that uh, his teammates wouldn't touch his hand, right? I mean, it was right. so hot that it's <laughs> that like they everybody even touch believes it. in it. It's like he kind of believes in it, but they believe in it, even though they're not the person with the odd hand. They believe in it. They don't even want to touch him. And not only do they believe in it, but the other team believes in it too, right? Uh-huh. And so his hot hand completely warps the behavior of everybody around him. So the other team is double teaming him. They're sending two, three defenders at him. It has become their goal to not let him shoot the basketball. And one of the funny things is that his hot hand makes it easier for everyone around him to score. So there are a couple times in this game when instead of shooting, he just passes to his teammates for open layups for the easiest looks they'll ever have. So not only does he take advantage, not only does he realize that he is hot and that he should keep shooting, but he realizes that he's hot. He realizes that the other team knows he's hot, mm. and then he takes advantage for his teammates. It's 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 a really um, fascinating thing. And I, I think he's sort of being humble in that post-game interview because I, what he has told me since then is that, of course, he realized he was hot, right? Like, everyone in the arena did. He was putting up shots that he would never have dared to take otherwise. They would have landed anyone else in the NBA a permanent spot at the end of the bench, and yet he knew he could do it. He was hot. Hmm. And and it's almost like it so transfixes people that the opposing team is like stops playing the game and just starts focusing on him. It's totally right. There's an amazing game that he played in college when he was at Davidson. He was the leading scorer in the country at that time. It was after he made a run in the NCAA tournament the year before. Everybody knew who Steph Curry was. And he comes into this gym against Loyola University, Maryland, when he's a junior in college. And the other coach that night decides they are not going to let Steph Curry score. He thinks the best way that he can help his team is to completely shut Steph Curry down. And he realizes this right away, Steph. He's in college. He's scoring more points than anyone in the country. And what he decides to do is take the two players who are assigned to essentially babysit him at every minute of the game, and he just drags them completely away from the action. Davidson plays four on three for the rest of the game, essentially. Steph Curry does not score. He goes scoreless. He scores zero points in this game. 
and Davidson wins by 30 points because mm. he has created this advantage for his teammates. So he is able to sort of weaponize his hot hand, whether he's shooting or not. Hmm. Okay, so let's back up for a minute. Um, you've written a book about all sorts of people in different fields feeling at one point in their careers like, I'm on a winning streak here, or I've got this thing called a hot hand. Um, what to you is a hot hand? Yeah, so there's no singular definition. But to me, I like to think of the hot hand as when success leads to more success. That's kind of the simplest way to put it. Um, in basketball, for example, it's when you make two or three shots in a row and you feel more likely to make your next shot. You feel like you can't miss. You're in the zone. You're on fire. But it's not just basketball. I think we are all familiar with the hot hand. Um, it's those times in our lives when we feel like we're on a roll and nothing can stop us. And we tend to remember those times very fondly because if we take advantage, I believe those times can change our lives. Right. So let me just distinguish for a minute. It This is not what you're talking about um, is not really luck. Like, you know, it's not like I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's not like going to the roulette table and putting a bunch of money on red and winning. Um, and, and, you know, maybe you have a really good night. But would you say that is the hot hand or that's something else? No, I think it's something else entirely. I think there's I think it's really crucial to differentiate between skilled performance and random performance. And um industries where we are in control of our own fates and when we're at the mercy of chance. And I think gambling is a perfect example. Gambling is not basketball, right? Um, the, when, you, when you sit down at a roulette wheel, you are not in control. And mm -hmm. so you might win. You might leave the casino, you know, hundreds of dollars richer, and you might have a great night. But that is not quite the hot hand in the way that it's traditionally been studied. You actually talk about how casinos, though, play this up because people in some ways like to look for order in chaos and that that casinos, like, people tend to believe like, oh, if you've been betting on black all night at the roulette table, that like red's going to win next. Yeah. they. The, if you go to a casino now, if you sit down at a roulette table, the chances are there will be some sort of electronic scoreboard where they show the last few numbers and whether uh, the last few spins have resulted in red or black. And it's precisely because of that, because we look for patterns where they may or may not exist. So the corollary of the hot hand in many ways is something called the gambler's fallacy. And actually the easiest way to understand it is through basketball. So if you're in an arena and Steph Curry makes three shots in a row, everyone in the arena is going to think that he is going to make his next shot, right? Okay, okay. But if you sit down at a roulette table and the ball lands on red three times in a row. What studies have shown is that most people will bet on black the next time. Mm -hmm. The same circumstances, completely different outcomes. And it's because of when we are in control, we feel like we have the hot hand. We can beat probability. But when we are at the mercy of chance, we sort of sense that we can't. And that is exactly that difference between skilled performance and random performance, between uh, intentional behavior and something that's a little bit more incidental. Now, there are a lot of academics, uh, perhaps strangely, who have looked into this idea of the hot hand, um, even though there's something about it that seems kind of anecdotal and mystical and, uh, I don't know, like having a, you know, some sort of lucky charm with you. Um, why would academics care about it? 
Yeah, it all started in the 1980s when the first classic study of the hot hand was published. And what made it so classic was this counterintuitive conclusion that there was no such thing as the hot hand. It was this very accessible, digestible, easy-to-understand example of seeing patterns in randomness, which is this classic cognitive bias that we've all come to understand over the last 40 years. But when Tom Gilovich and Bob Ballone and the great Amos Tversky published this study in 1985, it was really a sensation. I mean, something kind of amazing happened when they published that study, which is that it was so unbelievable that many people just refused to believe it. We'd all seen the hot hand and felt the hot hand, and now these professors were coming along telling us there was no such thing. It was our minds playing tricks on us. Right. And it has implications so far beyond basketball, which is really why they were studying it, right? It it affects our – these are people who studied judgment and decision-making, and clearly this impacts both. And what was their argument for, you know, gee, you may think you see this. You may have been to that basketball game with, well, the basketball game with Steph Curry hadn't happened, but you may have seen something like that um, in your life or felt something like that. But I'm telling you, no, this doesn't exist. Yeah, it's an it, it's an example of seeing patterns and randomness, right? Okay. And that's something that um, humans are prone to. And it's this cognitive bias that we all have. So and the they, question- that's what they thought was happening, that people are just detecting fake patterns that aren't really there. Yeah, it was this costly illusion. But you also talk about there's another kind of side of this academic side. Um, You talk about a statistical physicist named um, Dashan Wang, and he became really interested in this idea of a hot hand, not really because of basketball, but because of um, another scientist, uh, Albert Einstein. So what did his work lead him to think about this idea of the hot hand? Yeah, he's a statistical physicist, and what he ended up studying was sort of the science of streaks and creativity. And this is a very recent paper. It came out in the last two years. And he looked at movie directors, he looked at scientists, and he looked at artists. And he tried to find some way to objectify the subjective. So he looked at IMDb ratings for movie directors, and he looked at uh, auction prices for artists, and he looked at Google Scholar citations for scientists. And what he wanted to know was, is our best work streaky? Do we perform in bunches? Are our creative hits clustered? And what he found is that if you tell him what the best work of your career is, he could probably pinpoint the second best work and the third best work because he believes that we do have hot hand periods in our careers and that they bear themselves out when you study the data. Um, You know, I mentioned he was inspired by Albert Einstein. Why? Well, Einstein had one of the the hottest runs in the history of science, in the history of mankind, Mm -hmm. however you want to put Mm -hmm. it. I mean, it's known as his miraculous year of 1905, and uh, it culminated with the discovery of his special theory of relativity. But he did three other things that year that, you know, I think anyone else could have just, you know, quit and learn how to yodel if that if that's, if that's <laughs> it was a good year for him. It was a it good was year. A very, it was a very good year, as our friend Frank Sinatra once said. So, so if Wang found, oh, actually, we do do things in streaks, in some ways we do have the hot hand, like this was Einstein's year and he was like pumping it out that year with like really, really great ideas. Um, how could it be that what 
Wang is saying is true. He, here he is analyzing something scientifically. But then you talked about this seminal paper from these very famous um, uh, folks in the 1980s that were like, no, no, that's not how it works with, with us and our greatest work. People are seeing patterns in a bunch of chaos. It, it's fake. How do you reconcile those things? Well, that's part of, I think, the science and the mystery of all of this is that there has been this great debate over this idea over the last 40 years. But what has really happened in recent years is that we have uh, uncovered new evidence powered by new data and new ways of thinking about this that have led to new conclusions about the hot hand. But there's also a difference between having the hot hand in a short basketball game, right? Steph right. Curry scoring 54 right, right. points in one game and Einstein producing four papers over the course of a year. And how to parse those differences I think is really interesting and I think is one of the like fascinating, alluring mysteries about this sensation that I'm not even sure how to think about anymore. Do you think that most people, like the people that you've come across, ordinary people, um, believe in this idea of the hot hand, like that you do get into the zone and these are the most, you know, you might have the most productive creative period of your life or sports period or whatever it is? Yes. I think we've all felt the hot hand. We've all seen the hot hand. And in fact, you know, I cover the NBA for The Wall Street Journal. I write about basketball players. I interview them all the time. And I asked Steph Curry, do you believe in the hot hand? And he says, not only does he believe in the hot hand, he's never met anyone in the NBA who doesn't believe in the hot hand. And mm. some of the some of the studies of the hot hand over the last 40 years have actually proven this. I mean, somewhere between 90 to 100 percent of people polled in these studies say they do believe in the concept of the hot hand. And that's in part because they felt it. They've seen it for themselves. When I was 17, it was a very good year. We're going to come back uh, in a minute with more about The Hot Hand, including the story of a beloved movie that almost didn't get made and the director who used his winning streak to make sure it actually did. I'm talking to Wall Street Journal reporter Ben Cohen. He's the author of The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. And by the way, if you want to know more about that record-breaking 2013 game that Steph Curry played, uh, we've got a highlight reel from that game for you on our website. Plus, we've got more from Mark Turmel and the video game that he created, NBA Jam. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. When I was 21. In the mid-1980s, a young but successful director had his eye on his next film. And he knew what he wanted. He wanted a movie based on his favorite book as a kid. And I went and read it again. I said, wow, it's still fabulous. It is just the hippest, smartest, funniest book, you know, ever. And it, it combined all these sensibilities, you know, satire and adventure and romance, had all this stuff in it. Wow, this is cool. And I said, I'd love to make a movie out of this. That's Rob Reiner, who had gotten tremendous acclaim in 1984 for a film called This is Spinal Tap. And then he got more acclaim in 1985 for The Sure Thing. And then he got both an Oscar nomination and a huge financial win in 1986 for the movie Stand By Me. If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. 
Pez. Cherry flavored Pez. No question about it. All of those movies were movies that nobody else wanted him to make. And that was such a delicious contradiction to me because those movies turned out to be either commercially successful or critically successful. And yet only he had the courage of his own conviction to actually go out and make those movies at the time. Ben Cohen is the author of The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. And he's a writer at The Wall Street Journal. Unfortunately, the film that Rob Reiner wanted to direct next, well, that was going to prove a harder nut to crack. But, Cohen says, Reiner was on a winning streak, and he used it to his advantage. And that sort of leads us to this amazing conversation that Rob Reiner has talked about that he had with a studio executive before he made this fourth movie. The studio executive comes to him and says, we'll make whatever you want to make, right? The idea being like, he has the hot hand, you're a winner. Whatever you push out is going to be amazing. Correct. And that's how Hollywood works, right? And he says, no, you actually don't want to make what I want to make, and I know this. And she says, no, really, we'll do whatever you want to do. And he says, no, I'm telling you, you don't want to do what I want to do. And they have this great Abbott and Costello routine. And finally, she says, just tell me, what is it? What movie do you want to make? And he says, I want to make The Princess Bride. And she says, well, anything but The Princess Bride. I was so naive. I didn't know that... You know, they had tried to make them, you know, Francois Truffaut was involved, Redford was involved, Norman Jewison. You know, it was on a list of the, you know, one of the great screenplays that would never had never been made, you know, on the list of 10 great So um, I decided, let's see if I, William Gold would have let me do it. I was like an idiot, you know, I thought, well, he'll, you know, who knows if he'll say yes, I don't know. William Goldman, who had written The Princess Bride, was by that time a well-known screenwriter who was so understated, he once said there were only two things that he had ever written that were decent enough not to humiliate him. One was an original screenplay called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, for which he won an Oscar. The other was a novel that he'd written in the 1970s, The Princess Bride though Goldman probably sold himself a little bit short. Cover-up had little to do with the break-in. It was to protect covert operations. The covert activities involved the entire U.S. intelligence community. Did Deep Throat say that people's lives are in danger? Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. Goldman had also written the screenplay for the 1976 movie All the President's Men, for which he won another Oscar. But still, Reiner knew that convincing Goldman and studio executives that he could make this movie, that wasn't going to be easy. So he made an overture to Goldman. He had not seen anything. He saw Spinal Tap. He thought, that's good. And then I showed him the sure thing. It was in rough cut form. And he looked at that. He says, okay. Then he agreed to even take a meeting with me. And I walked into his apartment. I was with Andy Scheinman. And he said, at the door, he greeted me. He said, this is my baby. This is, I want this on my tombstone. This is my favorite thing I've ever written in my life. And basically, well, what what are you going to do with it? It was the only movie that Rob Reiner wanted to make. And what he did was he took his hot hand, period. He let himself do something that nobody else wanted him to do. And it just completely worked. I mean, the, The Princess Bride is now one of our most beloved cult classic films. And I think you could argue, and I certainly have, that Without the hot hand, it wouldn't exist. You've made your decision then? <laughs> Not remotely. Because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. 
and Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? And what's so funny, Kara, is that when I asked Rob Reiner about it, what he remembers about The Princess Bride, what he remembers is that it was still so hard to get this movie made, right? Like, you would think that uh, the success of it in the 35 years since then might cloud his memory. But what he remembers is that uh, despite his hot hand, despite the fact that, like, we all should have been throwing money at him to make whatever he wanted to make, it was still almost impossible, and that's what he remembers. So the hot hand is is powerful, and yet, like, if he didn't have the hot hand, I'm not sure that we would all, you know, remember The Princess Bride. We wouldn't have these, uh, you know, fantastic lines that have been seared into our memory over time. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! How do you square that with, you know, we, we were talking about Steph Curry and, like, he had this amazing game and, and people don't want, even want to touch his arm because, like, it's so hot. It's so amazing. Like, nobody wants to jinx it. And everybody's aware. Everybody in the game but also in the stadium is aware. Well, I mean, here's Rob Reiner. He's clearly on a roll. But the, even the studio executive, as you said, she's like, mm, yeah, but not that movie. Well, but why don't they recognize like what the people in the basketball game recognize is like this guy's on fire? It's a great question. And I think some of it has to do with how much we control of our own fates, right? Steph Curry can bring the ball up the court and he can shoot to his heart's delight. Mm. And yet Rob Reiner needs other things to break his way in order to make movies. And I think that's one of the things about the hot hand that I'm still thinking about even after writing a book about it, which is that there are circumstances that allow us to take advantage of the hot hand and there are circumstances that don't. And part of our job is to figure out when those circumstances do conspire in our favor. And so I think that movie making, it could go either way and in that way it happened to go Rob Reiner's way. But there are plenty of times when Uh, it's equally important to recognize when streaks can't be cultivated and when there is no such thing as a hot hand that's available to us. I know you've uh, talked to people who, a lot of people on the science side of this, who've kind of looked at the statistics around it and, you know, do people tend to produce great stuff in certain periods of their lives, like this very streaky way, and then and then maybe they have periods where just they don't have the great ideas or they don't shoot all the three-pointers, that kind of thing. But I wonder if you've talked to anybody about what this, like, what characterizes the hot hand? Is it just, everybody has had those days where they're like, I am so smart and I'm awesome. And like, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm producing things and like, who can, you know, who can compete with me kind of things? Like, how do you know that it's not the placebo effect? It's just like a day when you, a, a day or a week, maybe it's a month, whatever, where you feel really good about yourself. And maybe that'll change, but you do at that moment. Of course. I think there's some intentionality about it. I think that the hot hand is sort of characterized by taking advantage of the hot hand. So Steph Curry might have been really hot that night in Madison Square Garden, but if he only takes one shot, nobody ever knows that he's really hot, uh-huh. right? And so I think that it's about recognizing it and using it to your advantage. So, you know, in if, if you happen to not be a professional basketball player, let's say you work in an office, right? That might be pitching some passion project or, or calling some client with some crazy idea and figuring that, um, you know, you have been feeling good lately and maybe this is the time 
to strike. Um, but I think that there is, I think that you do have to take advantage of the hot hand for the hot hand to exist. There's a little bit of like chicken and egg mm-hmm. with this. Um, and I think that's part of what we're still trying to figure out about this idea, you know, 40 years after it's been brought to our attention. So uh, to come back to this sort of dueling science of whether we the the hot hand is a real thing or it isn't, you talked about there's this like foundational paper in the 1980s, there, and it's like no, you know, and the really famous um, scholars put it out, and they're like no, this thing called the hot hand doesn't exist. After that, there is some work by scholars who're like actually maybe it does. Um, when you go back, I know you have to some of the people who worked on that original 1980s paper. Um, where are they on the science of this? Have they been moved at all uh, by some of the arguments that you've heard? I think they are still fiddling around with the idea themselves, and they are open to this new data that has come along that just simply not only did it not exist in the 1980s, it was not even imaginable, right? I mean, the beauty of that 1985 paper and the reason I I find it so admirable to this day is because it found something – that was just so great that, you know, we we all feel the hot hand is real and yet it's not. And they were basing it off of the best data that they had available to them at the time. But over the last 35 years, a lot has changed in basketball, in the data that's available, even in the ways that we think about that data and we can crunch those numbers. And so um, I think that they find that 35 years later, they are still running experiments about the hot hand to try to understand this phenomenon that they uncovered and coined uh, for the world to understand. And so I went uh, to Cornell a few years ago where Tom Gilovich, who was one of the authors of the original paper, was running a new shooting experiment. He was still thinking about the hot hand and playing with it all these years later. Huh. A, a, a basketball shooting experiment. He's still thinking about basketball. Yes. Okay. Well, that, that, I think that's probably important to clarify, a basketball shooting experiment. Okay. Okay. Can you give an – is there an example of um, something where you feel like if you believe in the hot hand too much – the, you know, you were talking about it backfiring. Is there an example there that, that jumps out to you? So so for this example of the hot hand, I went to a sugar beet farm on the border of North Dakota and Minnesota to visit a guy named Nick Hagen, who is a fifth-generation farmer. His family has been there since the 1800s. And I wanted to know, do you believe in the hot hand, and do you behave according to that belief? And what he told me was that, of course, he believes in the hot hand. He's a basketball fan. He's a sports fan. He was sort of familiar with all of this. But as a farmer, he couldn't believe in the hot hand. Like if he bets the farm on soybeans having a good year in one patch of his farmland because they happened to perform well the year before, and he invests all of his money and resources into that one patch of farmland, the way that you might if you were Steph Curry, right? Like you might shoot all those threes that one (laughs) night because you feel hot. It can backfire spectacularly. Like you can lose the farm. And it's because Nick Hagen is not Steph Curry and not because he's not as good of a shooter as Steph Curry, but because his industry does not necessarily allow for Mm -hmm. a hot hand. He is at the mercy of something as random as the weather. He doesn't have all that much control. He can control what he can control, but a lot of things are beyond his control. So in farming, as in investing, Nick has come to understand that he has to play the long game, control what he can control, play defense, not offense, but play defense, defend against all of these things outside of his control, and most important, 
believe in principles over patterns. Don't chase patterns, but fall back on what you have been bred to believe. What, where do you think you stand? Now, like, after looking at all these both real-life examples but also sort of um, uh, scientists who've really tried to understand in a systematic way how the hot hand is or is not working, where do you think you are? Do you think you're anywhere different than you were at the very beginning when you started looking into this phenomenon? I think I have a much clearer understanding of what I believe about the hot hand. I do think that there is such a thing as a hot hand. I think it's real. But I think it's equally important to recognize when it might not be real. And that might not be the most, like, self-helpy answer that people want. But I think it's it's intellectually honest and it's important to think about it that way because – it's just silly to go out into the world thinking that there is a hot hand in every industry and every circumstance is ripe for taking advantage of the hot hand. It can be disastrous. Like, you know, to put it in the metaphor of the hot hand, it can burn you. It can backfire if you mm-hmm. think that way. But I do think that there are times when uh, there is a hot hand and that we can take advantage and not just in basketball. Like I've felt it in my own career. I've felt it while writing. There are times in my life when – I just feel like I'm on a roll and right. I just – it happened not too long ago and it just it, – it made me realize that I just have to keep working really hard that week because that feeling that you can bottle doesn't come along and you have to strike when it does. Ben Cohen is a sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. He's the author of The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Ben, thanks for being here. Thank you. On our website, we'll have more about the making of The Princess Bride and how Rob Reiner used that hot hand. That's at innovationhub.org.